Before we begin, if you want to join our growing group of supporters and give $5, 10 or $20 a month to help make the show even better, you can sign up to the Harder Reports Patreon right now and get exclusive access to full unedited interviews with guests. That's the Harder Reports Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Harder Report. And now, today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Amy Siskind, author of The Weekly List, host of The Weekly List podcast and president of The New Agenda. Amy Siskind, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Many people out there like you were fascinated and fixated with the 2016 election campaign following along closely but once the result was in even though people weren't necessarily happy with the result they headed off back to their normal lives and thought we're stuck with this for four years what can we do we'll challenge him again in 2020 but you didn't do that you started the weekly list to keep track of everything donald trump has done as president why did you see this as essentially your duty? And did you think it would take off anywhere near the level it has? Yeah. So in, in short answer, I, I, our country, I've never seen anything like it. So just before I get into my own personal journey, a lot of my friends who had no political engagement at all uh, for the first time after 2016, for example, got a subscription to the Washington Post or started donating to the ACLU. So I think our country changed. And then when we had our next stopping point, which was the 2018 election, so many people got off the sidelines to vote. Uh, and of course, we had the Women's March and a lot of signs shortly after Trump took office that our country kind of recognized the enormity of what this election meant. Uh, so I might not have been, I certainly was not alone in galvanizing. I think they said one in Four Americans marched uh, in the year after Trump took office in some shape or form, some of the various protests. But for me, as I, I run a national women's organization, so I had a lot of people asking me, what do we do? What do we do? And, and so my own personal exploration was um, I'm a Jewish American and I grew up learning a lot about the rise of Hitler. My personal exploration was to read about authoritarian regimes beyond Hitler and how they come to being. And one of the bits of advice that really struck me was the importance of writing things down. And my North Star has always been Eleanor Roosevelt, who was our, our first lady under FDR, Franklin Delano's um, wife, but also, you know, in her own right, if maybe the, our vice president in some ways in her own lifetime. Uh, and, and the activism that she had in in you know, in promoting democracy. And I, I drove up to her house the Saturday after the election and, uh, again, reading all these things about authoritarianism and was just struck by some of the things at the exhibit of her home, talking about the importance of we, the people, in controlling our government. And that night, um, I drove home and started writing a list. And to bring us back to where we were at that point in time, Trump was tweeting attacks at the New York Times 
at the cast of Hamilton, at the cast of Saturday Night Live. So we knew this was not normal. Now when I say those things, it'll be like, wow, okay, we're so used to that. But that's part of what experts had warned about. And when I go back and I read those articles that I read, Marsha Gessen had just written an article in the New York Review of Books that um, Saturday how prescient they were. It was amazing. I mean, everything Marsha predicted has happened. She said he would undermine the courts. He would end the daily press briefings. All the norms that you could have seen would be undone were undone. I mean, it's we're for our young democracy, authoritarianism is new, but it's hardly a new phenomenon in the world. So that first week had nine items, uh, no, you know, grand ambitions. Um, of course, now we're up over 250, not normal items a week, but it was writing things down, the exercise of it. And by about week five, there were 20 some odd not normal items, and it had started to take on a life of its own in social media, and people started to ask for the links to stories because already we were missing things that were happening. So week five, it starts to get a little more uh, sophisticated. And week nine is when it really took off. It had over 2 million views on Medium, where I initially was posting things and um, started to realize the importance of the exercise I was doing. But I had no grand ambitions for what it would be. I just took advice and started writing things down. We've seen Donald Trump attempt to limit any oversight or scrutiny into his administration with the removal of five inspectors general. We've also seen his recent attacks against social media companies for going out there and fact-checking the conspiracy theories that he's posting on there. Yes. You talked about how you wanted to explore in what ways the Trump administration was advancing authoritarian norms, hateful rhetoric, retrogressive policies. Now we're in the final stretch of Donald Trump's first term. Do you believe the White House has moved in that direction? I, I think, you know, the fact that we're talking about these things so calmly and we're used to it is normalizing authoritarianism. I mean, we are in many ways an authoritarian regime. We have Trump not liking the fact he's told over 16,000 lies, the fact that he's going to be fact-checked on Twitter about voting. I mean, that's the issue that he's going to be fact-checked on. So that's silencing dissent. That's classic authoritarianism. That's something he's tried throughout by degrading our media. And the fact that he, you know, again, the content of what he's trying to suppress is voting, that we might need to have mail-in voting, which many states in our country have had. But when we have mail-in voting, it's a lot harder for Republicans to suppress the vote that, uh, you know, essentially what Russia managed to suppress in 2016 that brought us Trump and that is often the, the folks that are people of color in major urban areas that then can't get to vote. Um, so anything the Republicans can do to make it harder to vote and, and access to voting is the basis of our democracy. So these kind of things, you know, we're having this conversation on a Thursday. By tomorrow, there will be two others. I mean, it, it's sort of twofold. One is the noise, is the noise in Trump's head that we have all lived in and why we are all so exhausted that he is always doing these things. But while we are talking about those things on Twitter, we're not talking about the fact that America has lost 100,000 people in the period of three months. For us, the most loss that we've had other than two major wars and flu of 1918. 
So our country, he's distracting away from that. The fact that 41 million Americans are out of jobs, that a million seven Americans have been infected. So where we are as a country, I mean, it's, if the election were held today, Trump would get trounced. The Republican Party would get trounced. Um, I suspect that will still be the case come November. But what he is trying to do now very desperately is to change the subject and to take control of the narrative, which is pretty much what he's done. If you and I had this conversation two or three years ago, what's happened, though, over the period of time and, and on the website where my list live now, the weekly I did a video there. We have an activist organization called MoveOn.org, and I did videos with them early on in 2017. And one of the things I warned about was the fact that Trump was not. Uh, he, he believes our government is run by the deep state. Uh, so he hasn't still filled a lot of federal agencies. You've talked about inspector generals that he's fired. But away from that, he's not filled leadership roles or he's filled them with sycophants and incompetent people. And so one of the things I was worried about in 2017 is how that would play out. There's a video that I did with MoveOn.org where I basically likened it to a car moving along and not after 3,000 miles, you don't you don't change the oil. And then you go 6,000 miles and 10,000 miles, and eventually things start to give out. And for us, that was Hurricane Maria back in 2017, where 3,000 people in Puerto Rico died, and we did such, Trump did such a terrible job there. But what brought us to the pandemic uh, and brought the world the pandemic, this is the U.S., I mean, for us as Americans, we pride ourselves on taking a leadership role the pandemic could have been prevented if our scientists over in China were not pulled back, if our funding was not pulled back, if all the layers of our government and our agencies that deal with such things were not disassembled as part of Trump's deep state. I mean, a lot of us who are Americans blame America for abdicating our leadership role and how Trump has acted since trying to hire German um, scientists to develop vaccines for us and not for anyone else. I mean, it's just, it's shameful to us for the rest of the world. But all of it was foreseeable because Trump has been, you know, abdicating these things all along. So the pandemic is sort of like the grand punch of payback for what we had left uh, for over three years, what we've let happen. It's sort of like the, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah story coming true to America. Unfortunately, you know, the rest of the world is impacted. But again, this is a, a leadership role. Our countries used to, uh, those of us in America do not know what to do. Again, I live near one of the early hotspots outside New York City. And we have Governor Cuomo, who has done an amazing job. But people here do not know what to do. We are used to our Center for Disease Control being a world leader. Trump has neutered that agency. We have no idea what we're supposed to be doing. It's, it's havoc in our country. As you've stated on Twitter when talking about this pandemic that America and the world is facing, quote, the Republican House Select Committee on Benghazi spent 31 months investigating the deaths of four Americans to find no wrongdoing. Now 100,000 Americans have died in three months and not a single Republican has a thing to say other than to enable and get behind Donald Trump. This is part of a wider pattern of a lack of oversight into the Trump administration. And we've acknowledged some of the areas of it with the removal of inspectors general. But do you think Republicans are setting a dangerous precedent here? One that could reshape American politics for the next president, the president after the president after that, 
by essentially laying out there, and they've done it even in a court of law, that the president is above the law and above scrutiny. Yeah, I mean, again, the need to codify on the other side of this, some of the things that were meant to be checks and balances. So I, I think our country did not foresee what has happened, that we would hold an impeachment hearing, which in my mind was for one of the smaller offenses, but it was something that you could delineate and discuss, and it was easy to present to the American people. And yet the Republicans, what they have largely done in, in 2018, a lot of them just left. Uh, when you look at a lot of the Republican leadership in 2016, Daryl Issa, Paul Ryan, uh, Trey Gowdy, they, uh, you know, they all just left town. They were cowards. The one, uh, and so many have decided not to run. Um, and are, are leaving, and if they didn't leave in 2018, leaving in 2020. It's shocking to me how few have had any conscience or patriotism for what is happening in our country. A uh, handful, and a lot of them now are not even in serving in, in our Congress. So that's been a lesson for people um, of the type of politicians that we are attracting in that party. I, you know, I, I suspect, and anything could happen, you're going to see a repeat in 2020 of what you saw in 2018 in our country, where over there was a huge sea change. Um, you know, the way our politics works, our Senate, people run every six years, so there weren't that many Republicans up in 2018 in the Senate. This year, there will be. So I think you're going to see a huge sea change in the Senate. Uh, and you could have a historic kind of landslide against Trump. I, you know, this, these are kind of the times that our country, uh, Americans are, you know, ge are generally, we have our, clearly you've, you've seen them on, on TV, the people protesting with their guns and their Confederate flags and their neo-Nazi signs. Uh, but Americans are largely very good people that care deeply about one another. And this is not the what we've seen under Trump and what has been enabled under Trump. And these kind of elections are where people come out who are unsatisfied, like after George Bush in 2006, after our, our war that was based on false information, people came out and, and shifted. We, it's sort of our way of going back and forth. I do worry about, and I, I think you see even Trump allies, when he starts to go after Barack Obama for Obamagate, which is still this undefined term, what that will mean for him. But he's too stupid to think forward that way. Uh, but I, yes, I, I think whoever takes over next, and that's part of the effort of my list, which is also in the Library of Congress, it's going to be a trail map back to normalcy. And we're going to also need to have, and if it's Biden, I, I believe Biden was not my first choice, uh, but I think he will be a fine placeholder to put in place the kind of things we need to do to get this back into check. And I, I, we will need to codify things. A president needs to have releases taxes or her taxes, have a medical exam where Americans can see if they're healthy. And these kind of things that we just took as norms, but were not laws. I think you'll start to see those kind of things change. Uh, but I think right now, whoever takes over is first going to have to deal with the fact that we're probably moving into a depression that there are because of the way Trump, he refuses to wear a mask. He refuses to social distance. He's 
going on TV saying he's taking hydroxychloroquine and disinfectants and now insulin. I mean, it's just, you know, it's like craziness here. We're probably going to lose a lot. We're up to 102,000 Americans. We're probably going to lose many more Americans. And this was all preventable. So whoever takes over next is going to have a, a huge undertaking just to stop the death. Uh, we are by per, on a per capita basis have the ninth most deaths in the, in the world, which for our country is unthinkable. But you're you're with us too. It's all the authoritarian leaders: Brazil, Russia, UK, US. All the strong men have failed their countries. And the way to obviously tackle that is by people turning up and voting in November 2020 in America. And let's take a look at that 2020 race just for a minute because. We are seeing similarities with the 2020 race and the 2016 race, particularly on areas such as how the media is covering the campaigns, the approach that Donald Trump is taking by throwing dirt and setting essentially his son out there as an attack dog to just throw mud and slander and conspiracy theories out there about the Democratic opponents and other Democrats that are running. Do you fear that after all of this and after all of the anger that there is on the democratic side and we saw people showing up and turning up and voting in 2018 to reflect that anger do you fear that we are facing a repeat of 2016 where people like the media will fall into those traps the public out there will get swamped with all of this misinformation that's thrown out there and it will lead to a trump re-election it, it my short answer is no uh 2016 was a highly unusual election. We had heavy Russian interference, and we will again. Uh, but we also had these exogenous factors. We had this Comey letter. And you could have something like that again, um, where Hillary would have, you know, the data shows won, if not for Russian e efforts to impede the vote, which are now, I mean, there's been, there's a professor at UPenn who has actually gone through and done a um, forensic accounting of how the vote was impacted. Donald Trump won by 77,000 votes, basically, in three states. But it's very targeted. I, I think we'll be smarter, and I don't think it will be as close. Uh, the polls have Biden ahead of where Hillary was at this point in time or where ahead of wherever she was. Our country, sadly, still is very sexist. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's my work as a, a woman who my organization came about after Hillary's first run in 2008, the new agenda. Uh, but here we are. So I, I think that will take away a lot of the, the bullets that we had. There were a lot of undecided voters at the end that went for Trump. There are not undecided voters the way that there were four years ago. I think the dynamic is vastly different. If I were to predict, I think it will be a landslide, a landslide not potentially of McGovern kind of impact, but I do believe it will be a landslide and not close. I don't think any of the states that I mean, Trump is at this point trying to defend states like Georgia and Florida that, um, you know, so do I worry about it? Yeah, I mean, I guess the outside worry is that all of a sudden the economy appears to be getting much better and that people feel better. But I, I think our country is beyond that. I think it is just so much deeper 
than just the immediate impact. I think it is really a, an election about the soul of our country. And we've had a lot of elections in between that are unusual elections, off-year elections uh, that have gone Democrat in places that should not have gone Democrat, like Kentucky governor, like Alabama. So, you know, hope springs eternal. If, if, it, if something does go wrong, it won't be the same thing as 2016. Our media has learned nothing. Our media is horrible. Uh, they are still looking for this horse race. They have elevated claims against Biden that Trump could have done 20 times wrong and they don't hold him to the same standard, but they're trying to create a horse race because that's what they do. But I suspect Americans are smarter about it this time and the level of engagement and um, I think will be at the level of 2018, if not more. Joe Biden has faced an accusation of sexual misconduct, and that has been pounced upon by the Republican Party and those that have supported and enabled Donald Trump during his time in office. However, Donald Trump has himself been accused throughout his time in politics and before by over 20 women of sexual misconduct, including his ex-wife something that the media does not cover to the same extent so far okay. during this campaign as the accusation they've elevated against Biden. Why is it the case that there appears, and this is just one example of it, yes. to be one rule for Joe Biden or a Democrat and another rule for Donald Trump, both in the media and in the Republican Party? Well, the Republican Party, is, that actually was started by you know, just backing up into our politics, which is probably an unnecessary exercise at this point. But we have, a, a, I think, similar to what happened in, in your election, we have a far left plank that was the face of which was Bernie Sanders. And the, the reporters that actually brought this charge forward that egged on this woman and now has been disputed and kind of gone away were Bernie Sanders supporters with the hope that they would be able to bring down Biden and have Bernie be our candidate, uh, which a lot of us are grateful he's not. First of all, he didn't have enough support in the party, but we've watched what happened in the UK and we were really concerned about a repeat of that happening here. Um, but that was how it started. And our our party is like the Democratic Party great in infighting, you know, <laughs> and the Republicans tend to get in line and get behind. And the Democrats you know, like to have this moral battle of da, da, da. And I think we would have cared if it was about I mean, I certainly would have cared if it was a valid charge. It, it does not appear that it was. And so it's sort of, you know, we we. They're setting that particular thing aside because since then there's been Trump, uh, uh, Biden making inarticulate remarks on um, a, a radio show for an African-American man and that being amplified by our media for another four days, even though Trump is horrendous on everything to do with racism. I mean, if you follow the news in our country, we've just had another tragic death and we've had tragic everyday kind of things of, you know, being killed by while well, jogging while black or uh, trying to deliver a package as a FedEx employee while black. Racism in our country now is just out in the light of day under Trump. But yet Biden will say a small thing and our media will stick onto it for four days. I, I do think this is media based. 
I, th I think it was a lot more effective in 2016 against Hillary. So if you've asked me if I learned, if we've learned our lesson, the fact that email gate stuck and this other stuck with Bi this other stuff with Biden is not sticking means to me that the American consumer has gotten a little smarter. As I mentioned in the introduction, you launched the nonprofit organization, The New Agenda, back in 2008. And that works to improve, quote, the lives of women and girls by bringing about systemic change in the media, at the workplace, at school and at home. You mentioned in an earlier answer about, obviously, the sexism that women still face, particularly in politics, when they're covered in the media. What systemic and structural changes would you like to see and how can we go about making them to address these biases and, and double standards that you state women are facing out there? Yeah, I, I mean, I, being very frank, I started the organization with 30 Hillary Clinton supporters in my living room in 2008 after the primary here, which was just a... Uh, one of the saddest things I've ever seen of just an awakening for many in America well, in women of how deeply sexist our culture still was. And I personally thought in 2016, it would be like full circle and our work would be done so much. You know, we'd spent a, nearly a decade working to bring awareness to the issues of how women were treated in the media and so on and so forth. It's Sexism in our country is so deeply ingrained, and that's what we learned in the 2016 election with white women, many of my counterparts, college educated, just like, oh, I like Hillary, but not that woman. And then the next election, well, I'd like, I would have voted for Liz Warren, but next election, oh, well, she's still not right. Our country is so deeply sexist, and I think that has, and deeply racist. Those are the two things that we learned that really Trump played on and exploited in 2016. So um, one of the things that I had personally been planning to do after the, that I had was planning to launch in April were saloons in my, in my living room to bring on other women to lead this battle, because I think we saw we've moved backwards. Um, and under Trump, you see now decisions being made by rooms of all white men. Uh, again and again, and it's sort of become normalized in our country. We're going to have to dig back out from the embers, and sometimes out of these things, great change comes, and it gives you the oomph. When you look around the world, which world leaders have done the best job in this pandemic? They're all women. I mean, look at New Zealand, look at Germany, look at Finland. I mean, it's just Iceland. There's a repeat pattern. All these strong men have done the worst. So, um, our country is deeply flawed that way. I mean, we're clearly deeply racist. You think the things that are happening now and, and white people in this country need a reckoning after we're done with Trump of what has become of white America and, and what gave way to Trump. We need that same reckoning on sexism. Our country is deeply sexist. Uh, but again, sometimes you take these three steps backwards to take the next step forward. And, and that's my only hope from this because the work has been heartbreaking that we have yet to have a woman head of state. We are one of the last countries to do so. We've heard from individuals like Stacey Abrams saying that she believes that America will have a female president by 2040. In fact, she believes that she will be a female president by 2014. But in 2008, 
2016, and again in 2020, we've seen America reject the ability to have qualified female candidates yes. as the president of the United States with the way that women are treated in the country. Do you think America will ever see a woman elected president? This brings me no pleasure to say, but Biden has promised to bring on a woman vice president. I think similar to the way that we had our first woman in Congress and in our Senate, which were wives of who you know, their husband had died and they took office, it's probably going to be something like that that's going to be needed because our country is so deeply backwards when it comes to sexism and racism that it will be somebody who has that leg up because she's vice president and Biden is pretty much said that he probably will not be a two-term president. And that, and she'll get primaried, for sure, whoever it is, if it's Amy, if it's Kamala, if it's Liz or Stacey. Uh, but I believe that's our best shot at having a woman president, or conversely, what happened in your country, somebody on the conservative side. What, conservatives will get behind whoever their candidate is. I mean, at Republicans. If, if it's not on our side, it will be somebody like a Nikki Haley, which has always been my fear that our first, as a Democrat, that our first president would be a Republican woman. And it might be. But I suspect that the path that we're on will lead whoever Biden picks will be our first woman, will be our first woman president in the 2024. From my mouth to God's ear, not the way I would have designed it. I, I thought Amy Klobuchar was vastly more qualified than Biden and the right person in the time, but or Liz Warren. But, you know, we, we wanted the safe white guy. Finally, to round up this interview, tell our listeners a bit about the new agenda, the weekly list podcast. Where can they find these things? How can they get involved? Sure. Give us all the details. Okay, yes. Yeah, so the the weekly list comes out every Saturday night my time, so you'll probably be asleep then. But it's a, it tracks Saturday at noon till Saturday at noon, and the website is theweeklylist.org. Uh, it is again the first draft of American history. It's being archived in the Library of Congress, and then the podcast, which I started doing 101 weeks ago now, uh, puts it into into um, verbal form, but it also gives some context to the bullets, which are much longer now. Again, it's 250 items a week. It's a lot to digest. So that puts it into some context uh, and, and sort of ties it together in a one-hour list, and that comes out every Monday morning. And that you can also find on theweeklylist.org. Um, the new agenda is thenewagenda.net. Uh, we have our our big annual event, like many things, was canceled. It's an in-person national event, but we're doing a girls' night out on June 9th. If anyone wants to tune in, you can register on our website. And um, we're just doing something informal with our board, talking about the challenges women are facing in our country in the pandemic. Uh, and I'm hopeful to be done with the list on November 3rd. We will see. <laughs> <laughs> and resume what was my so-called life before this, but um, pray for us in the UK. We need all your prayers for November 3rd. Amy Siskind, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. That was Amy Siskind, author of The Weekly List, host of The Weekly List podcast, and the president of The New Agenda. You can find out more about her on Twitter at Amy underscore Siskind and at amysiskind.com. That's all for today's episode. What did you think about that interview? 
Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe or recommend this podcast by submitting a review online and sharing it with friends and family. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>